This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's Christmas Day, 1988, and on wish list everywhere is a very specific toy. Actually, make that toys plural, because this isn't just a single toy, but an ensemble. And you don't want to just get one, but the entire team. As you frantically rip off the wrapping paper, four distinctive colors appear. Red, blue, orange, and purple. But the most notable color of all is green, as these are the colors of one of the biggest toy franchises in history. I'm Jamie Logie, and this is Everything 80s, a podcast that looks back on a decade that forever changed the way we dress, consume, and connected. And today, it's part two, all about the history of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. If you haven't listened to it already, I recommend going back to my previous episode and part one all about the history of the Ninja Turtles. In that episode, I cover the origins of the Turtles, their debut into the world of comic books, and their rapid rise in popularity. And as the franchise quickly grew, I also cover the launch of the beloved cartoon series. And that sets the stage for this episode and the next phase of the Ninja Turtles dominating 1980s pop culture and beyond. In part one, we left off with the debut of the five-part cartoon series, and just like pretty much every other cartoon in the 1980s, it was created with the intention of promoting a new toy line. The success of the miniseries, which debuted in late 1987, made the Ninja Turtles one of the most hotly anticipated toy lines of all time. The miniseries serves as a five-part commercial to introduce a new generation of kids to each Ninja Turtle, their origin story, and the accompanying characters like Splinter and Shredder. The original comic books were darker and much more adult-themed, and for younger viewers, the cartoon series was the first time they met Donatello, Leonardo, Michelangelo, and Raphael. The next season of the animated series was about to launch in the fall of 1988, and the goal of all of this was to launch the toy line. As we entered 1987, Fred Wolf began work on the five-part animated miniseries, and Playmates began creating the first line of Ninja Turtle toys. In less than three years, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, the creators of the Ninja Turtles, went from wondering if they could put enough money together to print one issue of the Ninja Turtles to signing a deal with a toy company and having a cartoon show commissioned. So what went into the creation and launch of the Ninja Turtle action figures and toy line? It began as a collaborative process between Fred Wolf and Playmates. Because of the cartoon show, kids would know that each turtle had a distinct persona and this was identified through the various color bandanas. But for the toy line, Playmates needed to continue this distinction. 
Instead of having the same green color on each turtle, with the only way to distinguish each being a stripe of paint over the eyes, each turtle needed to be its own unique shade of green. This would also make each one more identifiable in the toy packaging on shelves. The distinctive personalities and individual look of each turtle was also a smart move from a business perspective, as kids would want or demand to have all four of them. This isn't the Ninja Turtle, but Ninja Turtles, and to own them meant owning all four of them. They were a team. They were a pizza-eating collective. To own only one or two of them made it feel like an incomplete toy. It was like only buying two Voltron Lions. All four turtles were a package deal and would lead to more overall sales. Plus, kids glued to the cartoon series knew how distinct each Ninja Turtle really was. These weren't just four toys with different color bandanas. They were individual characters with their own weapons and unique personalities. It was like the A-Team, but green. Thanks to the cartoon, before they would even open up the packages, kids everywhere knew how to play with these things. They knew that Leonardo was the leader, Raphael the loose cannon, Donatello was the brains of the operation, and Mikey was the party animal. The cartoon series taught kids how the four turtles interacted. To parents, four turtles seemed like a cash grab, but for kids, owning all four was imperative. But what about the other characters in the Ninja Turtles universe? One early idea at Playmates was to take recognizable characters from the streets of New York, like cops and pizza makers, and turn them into hybrid human weapons. But the early iterations of the turtles and the accompanying bad guys were getting too big physically. The designs they were creating would have led to a higher price point, putting them out of reach for a lot of kids. The size of the figures was dialed back to three and a half inches. But this still gave the creators room to work with to give them larger physiques. If you ever held the original Ninja Turtles, they may have seemed big, but they were the same height as a G.I. Joe. The smaller form factor also allowed Playmates to scale down the playsets and vehicles to make them not only more accessible, but more affordable. Some of the notable playsets and vehicles included the interactive underground sewer lair and the gigantic Death Star-like Technodrome. There was also the Turtles Party Wagon Van, the Turtle Blimp, and the Pizza Thrower. Also included in that first release were characters like April O'Neil, Splinter, Shredder, a Foot Soldier, and Bebop and Rocksteady. The first cartoon miniseries had aired. Now it was time to market these things even more. It's the new wacky action wind-up turtles. Who are you calling wacky? How about Ray fighting Raphael, who spins to attack with foot stars and Ratola? That's not wacky. Well, what about sewer swimming Donatello, who gets into the swim with Spear and Scuba Jet, or Rock and Roll Michelangelo with spinning action arm and weapons? Well, now we're talking wacky. No, we're talking trouble. The commercials for the toys were presented to Playmates on a silver platter. Because of the success of the cartoon series, the commercials contained clips from the show alongside real-life footage of the action figures. For unsuspecting kids, it was a perfect example of the blurring of lines between what was a cartoon and what was an ad. A toy like the Ninja Turtles, along with its marketing campaign, could have only existed at this point in the 1980s. Prior to the 80s, 
There were so many restrictions on advertising to children that it would have been impossible for ads like this to exist. But now, cartoons and commercials seem like one and the same. In a single 30-minute TV time block, you had a 22-minute Ninja Turtles cartoon acting as a commercial for the toy line, and the commercials during the show were for that very toy. And they look like the cartoon too. And we have Ronald Reagan to thank for all of that. If you want some more details on all of that, you can check out my previous episode all about the history of G.I. Joe. The first Ninja Turtle toys started to hit shelves in the summer of 1988, just in time for season two of the cartoon series and the lead-in to Christmas. And they sold out. In the second half of 1988 and into 1989, Turtle Mania quickly took over. Eric Johansson is rushing down the aisle at Target because he's learned an important lesson. You gotta get to the store as soon as it opens to get a shot at the turtle of your dreams. The incredibly popular cartoon series continued to promote the toy line, and the toy line continued to propel the cartoon series in a near-perfect storm of commercialism. The demand for the toys was so great that manufacturers couldn't keep up with it. Toys R Us was a big champion of the Ninja Turtles and prominently featured them, leading to even more exposure. If you were a kid during this time period, it was really hard to not be exposed to the Ninja Turtles. The success of the cartoon and toys and Turtle Mania soon spread around the world. Question, who are Leonardo, Michelangelo, Raphael and Donatello? If you're an adult, you'll probably say Renaissance artists, but kids know better. They're teenage mutant ninja turtles, a cartoon and comic book craze which has swept the world. If you grew up in the UK during this time, you knew Michelangelo, Leonardo, Donatello, and Raphael by a different name, the Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. I grew up between Canada and England, and it shocked me to see the toys I knew so well under a completely different name. So why the change? Well, at the time, the British government was trying to crack down on any perceived violence in children's television. The fact the turtles were ninjas with violent weapons forced the name change on everything turtle-related, including the toys, the cartoon show, and even the lyrics to the theme song. Turtle Mania was running wild, and this added up to big sales. The Ninja Turtles brand quickly generated over $300 million in a year. According to the New York Times, within just four years of the release of the cartoon and the toys, more than a billion dollars worth of Ninja Turtle toys were sold. That's around $2.3 billion in today's money. Just four years in, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were already the third best-selling toy franchise of all time. An astonishing achievement. In less than a decade, the Ninja Turtles went from a doodle on a page to a billion-dollar franchise. And while all this was happening, the comic book was still plugging away. For the hardcore older fans who may not be into the cartoons, the comic book continued the original darker legacy they were all familiar with. In 1988, 
when the cartoon series was going strong and the toys were unveiled to the world, Mirage Studios released five new issues. This was followed by 10 more in 1989. But the success of the Ninja Turtles franchise went far beyond just the toys. With so much turtle mania, every Ninja Turtle product you could ever imagine was released. Posters, bedsheets, paper plates, toothpaste, there was nothing off limits to associate with the brand. You might have even gone to a Ninja Turtles themed birthday party. Ninja Turtles breakfast cereal? No problem. The Ninja Turtles also exploded at the perfect time to capitalize on the continued success of the Nintendo Entertainment System. Developed by Konami Games, the 1989 NES release was a side-scrolling game and was kind of like Mario because in this version, Shredder has kidnapped April and the turtles have to rescue her. And man, was this thing hard. Once you got to that water level, you knew it was pretty much game over. If you know, you know. My friend down the street had this game and I can't tell you how many hours we spent trying to get by this level. The frustration of this game would be rectified in the brilliant Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, the arcade game released for the NES in 1990. This game was a huge improvement and progression in graphics, sound, and playability, and is one of my favorites to this day. After the incredible success of all the Turtle Mania, the toys, products, and the first 18 episodes of the cartoon, a third season of 47 episodes was released in September 1989. If you're a longtime listener of this podcast, you know that the seemingly random number of 47, when added to the first 18, equals 65 episodes, the minimum amount needed for syndication. Now the Ninja Turtles could be licensed out to multiple networks and TV stations to play every day after school. But in the fourth season, the series was picked up by CBS. The show continued to be a gigantic hit. For the fourth season, another 41 episodes were created, debuting in September 1990. But for all things Ninja Turtles, this was no time to slow down. How do you continue to capitalize on an already white-hot property? Maybe a movie. Not surprisingly, the movie, like all things Turtles, would be a huge hit, but it wouldn't be without its controversy. Everything 80s will return after these messages. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Plans for a movie began not long after the success of the toy line in 1988. And it starts with Gary Proper. Proper was the road manager for the watermelon-smashing comedian Gallagher. Proper had come across a copy of the Ninja Turtles comic book, thought it should be a live-action film, and acquired the rights. In Proper's mind, you just needed performers in turtle suits and could use some big-name actors to provide the voices to help increase attention to it. Screenwriter Bobby Herbeck put together a first draft and consulted with Eastman and Laird. After a few months, the script was finished. But right now, here's a refresher on the plot of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the movie. New York is experiencing a crime wave, but no one knows who's doing it. Investigating this crime wave is news reporter April O'Neill. One night, she walks into a theft and is saved by some unknown heroes. They turn out to be four teenage mutant ninja turtles and their mentor, a giant rat named Splinter. April learns their origin story and how they were accidentally mutated from some industrial ooze. It turns out that the crime wave is being overseen by a character named Shredder, who is recruiting teenagers to join what is called the Foot Clan. Vigilante Casey Jones joins forces with the Turtles and April to try to take down Shredder and the Foot. Shredder, we will learn, had a run-in with Splinter when Splinter was still a rat, which led to violent scratch marks on Shredder's face that remain to this day. Splinter eventually gets captured by the Foot Clan and, after facing defeat, the Turtles spend time soul-searching. In the end, the Turtles and Splinter defeat Shredder, which disbands the Foot Clan and restores order to the city. But the final product you saw on screen isn't exactly what Herbeck put together. We'll get back to that in a moment. The plot of the movie isn't too far off from what appeared in the original comic books, but differed from the cartoon series while still containing some elements from that too. But who exactly would the intended audience be? The mainstream success of the Ninja Turtles was because of kids' toys and a kids' cartoon show. But that's not where the real Ninja Turtles come from. Their origins are much darker. How could the movie's creators find the balance between pleasing the old-school fans but not alienate the enormous kids' market? In the end, they leaned a bit more to the more intense side. For a six-year-old kid who was crazy about the Turtles, this movie wasn't necessarily for them. I distinctly remember seeing parents taking young kids out of the theater. Making this movie was already a big risk, but not just because it wasn't a wacky, live-action version of the cartoon show. It was because there was still a risk in comic book movies. Yes, the Ninja Turtles were a gigantic franchise, but comic book movies were not the guaranteed moneymakers they are today. 
The first Superman movie was a huge hit, but the sequels took the wind out of the sails. The highly anticipated Howard the Duck movie in 1986 was a flop, as was the He-Man and the Masters of the Universe film from 1987. Tim Burton's Batman was a monster hit in 1989, but was this an anomaly? Batman had been around for decades and is the quintessential superhero. How would a live-action film that most people only knew as a cartoon show hold up? Would it be the next Batman or go the route of the Garbage Pail Kids movie? It seems hard to believe, but while Herbeck was shopping the script around, many major studios were hesitant and just turned him down. This was one of the hottest toys of all time, but that's the kind of risk comic book movies were back then. Eventually, Herbeck just turned to a studio he was already working for, Golden Harvest. Golden Harvest was a Chinese production company that had made movies for Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris. It seemed like a natural fit for the Ninja Turtles. To direct the movie, they brought in Steve Barron, who had directed the Billie Jean music video for Michael Jackson and worked with other artists like Madonna and Brian Adams. But through all of this, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird still had a lot of control, and Barron assured them that he would do the original comics justice. Barron would also use specific scenes right out of the pages of the comic books. He wanted to keep that raw and gritty approach, but not take it too far and make it overly bloody and violent. But this new direction meant the story Bobby Herbeck wrote was altered, and Todd Langan from The Wonder Years was brought in to adjust things into a screenplay. So the story is in place, but how do you bring the Ninja Turtles to life? CGI, of course, wasn't capable of pulling off lifelike characters yet, so the movie would require performers in suits. But the turtles are the main characters of the movie. How do you make them lifelike and expressive? Obviously, you bring in Jim Henson. Henson, though, was a little concerned with the violent aspect from the Ninja Turtles comics. Ultimately, he was convinced to work on the movie because at the core of the Ninja Turtles is a story about family and the love and strong bonds between them. The Jim Henson Creature Shop sprung into action to create groundbreaking costumes and push the boundaries of puppeteering. But bringing in Henson meant the original $3 million budget was going to go up. Eventually, it increased to $13 million. Much of the production began around the summer of 1989. Filming took place in North Carolina and a few specific locations around New York City. Cast-wise, several sets of performers were needed for the Turtles. Four performers in the suits, along with four voice actors and some more stunt doubles. The suit performers were David Foreman as Leonardo, Leif Tilden as Donatello, Josh Pace as Raphael, who also provided Raphael's voice, and Michelin Sisti as Michelangelo. But then there were also extra in-suit martial arts stunt doubles, including Ernie Reyes Jr. as Donatello. You would recognize him as Kino in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Use. But besides the human performers, several others were involved in controlling the facial movements of the turtle puppets. Next were the voice performers to give an added dimension to the turtles. 
The voice of Donatello was performed by well-known 1980s actor Corey Feldman. Brian Tochi was the voice of Leonardo, and Robbie Rist was the voice of Michelangelo. Robbie Rist was also one of the main characters on the cartoon show Kid Video and played cousin Oliver on The Brady Bunch. For Splinter, Kevin Clash, who is the performer and voice of Elmo, was both the main puppeteer and voice of Splinter. One of the most important roles in the movie was Judith Hogue as April O'Neil, as she had to play alongside what were basically giant puppets. Elias Cotillas played Casey Jones, and James Saito played Shredder. But the star of the show was obviously the Turtles, and the turtle suits were heavy, 70 pounds in fact, and extremely hot and hard to breathe in. But this was still remarkable technology. As Jim Henson has said, they were the most advanced creature designs he had ever worked on. Sadly, this would be the last film Henson would ever work on before his death in May 1990. Distributed by New Line Cinema, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie was released in March of 1990, and I was there opening day. This was the first movie I was ever allowed to go to on my own with friends, so that's an already significant moment. And I loved every second of this film. I already loved the comic books, the cartoon, and all the turtle hoopla, but this was the movie I didn't think was possible. It captured what the Ninja Turtles were all about. It was gritty and compelling. It wasn't childish. It was raw. It had some light cursing, but it still had heart and emotion to it. To me, this was as close to seeing the original comic books come to life, and I feel it's one of the best comic book adaptations ever made. In his review, Roger Ebert said, quote, This movie is nowhere near as bad as it might have been. And probably is the best possible Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie. But that darker essence from the comic books rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, especially parents of young children pleading to go see it. For most people, they only knew the wacky Ninja Turtles from the cartoon show. This was a violent PG movie. It's not a G movie or even family rated. Even though Golden Harvest wanted it to be a bit lighter, the original vision paid off. Kids everywhere were hyped and demand looked to be so big that additional prints were needed to accommodate all the theaters wanting to show it. In its first weekend, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles the movie was number one at the box office, bringing in $25 million. Converted for today, that's around $60 million. And in a very smart move by the studio, they opened it in the U.S. on the weekend leading up to school break for that year to ensure kids could see it multiple times while they had the week off. By the end of its run, the Ninja Turtles movie, made on a budget of just $13 million, brought in over $200 million worldwide. That's close to a half billion dollars today. At the time, it became the highest grossing independent film Ever. The movie was a gigantic hit. Even though toy company Playmates reportedly hated an early screening and thought it could sink the franchise, the Ninja Turtles' popularity was bigger than ever. This led to even more brand exposure and yet more Ninja Turtles merchandise. But now, 
movie-related versions of all those products entered the market. Going into the 90s, it didn't seem as if the Ninja Turtles could get any bigger. But after the monumental success of the movie, the franchise reached an even higher level. The 1980s continued to make up a big part of the backbone of much of our modern entertainment, and leading that charge over the last few decades are the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's the franchise that seems to live forever. Besides Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze, there was a third film in the original series, Turtles in Time. Then, there was a live-action TV series in 1997. The original animated series went all the way until 1996. There was a second animated series that ran from 2003 to 2009, a third animated series in 2012, and a fourth series in 2018. Then there were the live-action CGI movies. It started with 2007's TMNT. Next was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, a 2014 movie produced by Michael Bay. That was followed up with 2016's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Out of the Shadows. Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the movie, came out in 2022. And as of the time of this recording, a new CGI animated film created by Seth Rogen is set to be released called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. There's been an endless amount of video games, concert tours, action figures, and even roller coasters of the Ninja Turtles. And through all of this, a comic book series continues to live on. In 2011, IDW Publishing acquired the rights to publish new Ninja Turtle comics, which they continue to do to this day. What started out as a joke, scribbled out on a piece of paper, turned into a $15 billion industry. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is many people's favorite toy and cartoon series of all time. With its origins and rapid growth happening in the 1980s, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are not only a defining 1980s franchise, but one of the biggest in pop culture history. So that's our show and the end of my series on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on more epic 1980s content. And if you know anyone who has an interest in this sort of thing, feel free to share this podcast with them. If you're in a position to help support the show, you can consider becoming a part of patreon.com. That's the platform to get access to bonus audio content like the Everything 80s Movie Club, where I review the good, the bad, and the ugly of 1980s movies. If you want to learn more, you can just head over to patreon.com slash 80s, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash 80s, or click on the link in the description. So that's it for me. I'm Jamie. This has been Everything 80s, but I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it. <laughs>